Our speaker this evening is Brigadier General Charles Davis, and he, as you will know and see from there, is the um, Program Executive Officer of the F-35 Lightning II uh, program uh, in, in the uh, United States Defense Organization. He has a long and distinguished career. He was commissioned in 1979. His career, and, and I could read it out, but I, I suspect he may say something about it himself, and that will probably steal some of his script already. But just suffice it to say, as a pilot myself, who's never had really the opportunity to fly anything that, uh, that was fast. Well, I should say I've flown things that are fast, but didn't have weapons on board. Um, he's flown T-38s, F-15s, A-7s, the F-117A and the F-16. And he has a background and a, a distinguished career in flight tests and in training as well. Prior to joining the F-35 program, General Davis commanded the 412th Test Wing at the Air Force Flight Test Center. And Brigadier General Davis is an experimental test pilot himself with 3,300 hours. So we're in, um, we're, we're in uh, good hands and receiving a lecture from a very experienced, distinguished uh, and learned person. So I'd like to ask you to join me in welcoming Brigadier General to the lectern. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is the... Uh, this is the program I have the honor and privilege of leading every day. I've got to tell you, it's the most challenging job I've ever had in 27 years in the Air Force. I, I, I honestly swear this program has its own dedicated devil that stays up every night to think of some new problem we're going to have to live through the next day. Uh, but even in spite of that, there's never been a single day that I've not enjoyed having the privilege and honor of trying to deliver this capability here. Um, it's going to bring our unique perspective to future of air power. If you just look at the partner nations that we have represented here uh, by the nine countries, if you think of a coalition that exists across uh, very, very large parts of the globe that will be basically operating the same airplane that's interoperable with the same capabilities, that kind of changes what our combatant commanders across the world will be able to do for, uh, for many years to come. I will tell you, obviously, designing and building a new airplane is very challenging. I, I, I took the time to read Sir James Martin's uh, authorized biography before I came here. There was a line in there that I appreciated very much. I think Sir James said that, that uh, designing airplanes was much harder than having twins. And if you look at the role that he probably had in the having twins part, I can understand why he would say that. And as we, as we look at what it takes to design and build airplanes here, and I'll go through a lot of these issues, uh, I certainly can relate to how he was feeling. Um, but anyway, these are what we, uh, what we see the future of the F-35 or uh, the Joint Strike Fighter, as we call it in the United States, or the Joint Combat Aircraft, as the program is, is, is designated here within the United Kingdom. I'm going to show you a quick video. For those of you that haven't had a chance to see our airplane fly, I've got about four minutes to kind of, if you will, comprise the first, uh, the first 16 or so flights of what we've had on the uh, program so far. And as the video runs, I'll give you a couple of notes here about where we're going. This is our first test airplane. We designated AA-1. It's one of the early flights here that we've uh, that we had in the program. We've had a total of 19 so far, about 20 hours total on the airplane. Uh, two pilots have flown the airplane so far, Mr. John Beasley and a Mr. Jeff Knowles. We've taken the airplane up as high as 38,000 feet, up to 20 degrees angle of attack. Ran through full afterburner, a variety of different roll modes, a variety of different flying qualities, and the airplane is performing very well to its predicted models. The airplane right now is flying out of Fourth Fort, Texas in the Lockheed Martin plant there. Uh, we have chase support that's provided by both the Air Force and the Naval Flight Test Centers. 
This is an Air Force Flight Test Center F-16, as you see here, flying with, uh, with John on the airplane. Unique flight control surfaces at uh, speed brakes that you think of in some airplanes don't exist. This exists by deflecting all surfaces kind of opposite to each other to slow the airplane down. You'll notice some of the uh, white paint, pink paint actually on the left wing. Uh, we've done fuel dump testing to see how well the fuel dumps without having a mast built under the airplane, which you can understand can be quite a challenge on a, on a low observable airplane. So that's why that airplane in that particular, that configuration had that designation. This is flying with the F-135 engine. There's a 40,000 pound thrust engine in the airplane right now that's been performing very, very well. Uh, you'll notice under the nose here, this little chin-mounted area is what is going to eventually carry the electro-optical targeting system, basically the FLIR pod or the lantern pod or the sniper pod that we call it. Uh, it's a derivation of the sniper pod built by Lockheed, but it's going to be carried in a stealth configuration within the airplane, as obviously will the fuel and all the weapons. One of the looks at uh, an early afterburner takeoff, uh, the comments by the pilots were that there was more power than they anticipated, more power than we had seen in the simulator. And so you see it takes quite, a, quite an angle to keep below the gear limiting speed till the gear comes up here. But it's just overall been a great, uh, very, very smooth flying airplane. You get a picture here, and I'll show you a better picture in a little bit, but the, the helmet-mounted display, the helmet-mounted system which carries all the displays for the pilot is in the airplane. Now, about four flights on it all together. This airplane you see here will probably be flying through early 2009. And I'll talk about it in a minute. The next airplane that we're going to fly is going to be the Stovall version, which will fly in May, roughly May of 2008. But this was provided a lot of good data for, simply because this airplane has basically 80 to 90 percent of the vehicle systems, the, you know, the electrics, the hydraulic actuators, and the flight controls, as well as um, um, some of the other, if you will, normal components such as landing gear and brakes, everything that will be on the rest of the airplanes that we fly throughout production. Now, I wanted to also, just to touch on, on the product whose namesake we talk about tonight, this is some of our early ejection seats on the Martin Baker Mark 16. So let me just kind of give you an idea. We have certainly, uh, as you look at what Sir James brought to the technology and what his company has carried on, I think I think the, uh, the, the company will tell you today that we've probably given them one of our one of their most challenging uh, situations that they have had in a long time. One of the challenges for this particular configuration in this airplane is the seat must accommodate people that are all the way in range from 103 pounds all the way up to 245 pounds um, in a stovel ejection situation, in other words, in a, in a short takeoff and vertical landing airplane in a hover situation whose obviously the engine can fail. You have to get out of it in a very quick period of time. So we basically have challenged it in the fact that we have made it a demanding situation which we must get out of quickly. We've also put a helmet on the individual that weighs a pound more than any of the helmets that we're flying today. We put a shape on that helmet, which you'll see in a minute, that when the seat comes out of the airplane, the aerodynamic forces cause a lot of neck loads, not necessarily compression, but twisting neck loads. Uh, particularly on the small size individuals that may have less neck mass. So you put this all together, we gave you a very, a very challenging situation for the ejection seat builders here. And uh, I'll talk about this a little bit more detail, but just you'll, you'll see some of the challenges we're working with here as we bring this up. This 
from outside the airplane. We'll show you one from inside in here in just a minute. And this has been more of our challenge, if you will, than having the, uh, the seat parameters work. If you notice, we have a very large canopy with very large pieces of transparent plastic that must clear the seat and prevent, if you will, prevent them from trying to damage the seat, the pilot, or come into uh, to contact with the, with, the, uh, with the parachutes in the airplane. One of the real challenges has been to make sure this separates to the point that it does not damage anything. We're still working through that. But it's been a variety of different configurations of detonation cord and different methods of tethering the plastic and tethering it so that it separates cleanly from the seat. And you get an idea of what it looks like from inside there. Again, looking at the helmet-mounted display, the helmet-mounted system we have, uh, which will be part of, obviously, every pilot's configuration. But the plastic separation and the seat clearing that has obviously been a little bit of a challenge. We've made a lot of progress since these early videos were made. And we're still continuing to work that as an issue. As we look through this, though, the reason this is important to the services that we have out there today is basically for the UK, for the US Navy, for the Air Force, we've never been able to accommodate that range of pilot size and safely eject them from the airplanes without having them accept some type of risk and provide some type of warning in the tech manuals that say if you eject under these situations, you could expect injury. We're trying to get past that. We've got a little bit of work to do in this area, but the plane will definitely accommodate a much different group of individuals flying the airplane than we've ever had, certainly any of our US Air Force legacy jets. Okay, this is what the F-35 is. There's three variants here. Um, if you will, the key attributes that we've tried to build into each one of these provided another level of capability that is not out there in any airplane in existence. It starts out with basically the things you would expect in this type of airplane. The stealth feature, obviously, is very important. Integrated avionics, I'll give you a really good idea of what that means to you, what an integrated avionics suite looks like. A wide variety of air-to-ground munitions, basically every munition that you can think of that's in existence on legacy airplanes will fly on this airplane in some configurations. Um, LPI, and I apologize as we go through this, please make sure you catch me at the end on any acronyms that we haven't spelled out. We get into this mode on almost a daily basis of, of just accepting these as natural language, and unfortunately they've developed their own language within the F-35, which I'm afraid many people do not come to grasp easy. So, Really, you, 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 you need to call me on the fact that if I don't help you out with, with understanding what these are. Um, obviously, the general features of the airplane is single seat. It's going to be flying very high. Two engines currently are planned for the configuration, although a lot of debate within the U.S. Congress on the second engine there, the GE Rolls-Royce F-136. Fully integrated sensors that cut across the capability of, uh, of, a, of a variety of, if you will, types of sensors that are in existence now, fused into one display for the pilot. The unique things about the airplane, if you look at these fuel loads and you think about them in terms of what airplanes are out there, whether it's a Typhoon or an F-18 or an F-16 or an F-15, that's basically the same equivalent fuel loads of all these airplanes fully outfitted with three tanks of gas and the weapons carried externally, but now carried in the F-135 in a single configuration, in a stealth configuration. So it gives it a lot of early penetration capability in the very challenging situations of the war right there. So as you look at it, basically the difference in these variants that you need to keep in mind, though, really are not in the, in the warfighting capability of the airplane. The difference is really in what it takes to get the airplane off the runway or off the ship and then back into the ship or back in the runway. The, really, the differences in the variants are just what you need to be able to fly your landing traffic patterns. Beyond that, the airplanes have the same computers, the same mission systems, the same radar systems, the same electronic warfare systems. So they're mission systems that, if you will, enable them to fight the war are all common across all three of the, uh, three of the variants as we go through there. 
It's interesting to note that, that we think this airplane is ahead of its time. I, I noted in Sir James's uh, biography that, that his designs, all three of them from the MV2, or all of them from the MV2, MV3, MV5, were all certainly considered ahead of the time. So we, we, we feel very fortunate that we are able to carry on some of this tradition in some small way here. The program, as it, as it fits into the structure of not only our partner countries, but certainly of the United States Air Force and the United States uh, Navy Marine Corps, as well as the Royal Navy Royal Air Force, the plan is for all of these services or all these countries, if you will, to transition some of these legacy airplanes you see here to the F-35. Certainly within the Air Force, it will replace F-16s and A-10s. As it moves to the Navy, it's going to replace the older F-18As and Cs. The F-18Es and Fs will remain in both the Navy uh, inventory as be a, a legacy supplement to the fleet. In the United States Marine Corps, it will replace the F-18As and Cs as well as the venerable Harriers. The Marine Corps right now is probably looking to get this airplane more so than any other service or any other country we have. They are very much uh, in the mode of trying to replace the mixed fleet they have of F-18s and Harriers with a single configuration. I'll show you how they're going to use the airplane here in just a little bit. And obviously within the Royal Navy, Royal Air Force, the GR-7s, GR-9s, and then other countries that fly older F-18s, certainly the F-111 in Australia, and then the mix of airplanes within Italy. So if you see, these are how the airplanes are going to transition into these services across the country and provide this capability. And also, as you do this, is certainly as you bring two airplanes down to one in the Marine Corps, or two airplanes down and one in the Air Force, you certainly do a lot uh, for reducing the maintenance cost of the airplanes. And certainly you do a, a lot to reduce the through life and support cost of the airplanes. Now, there's a lot of questions about a mix of airplanes like that across all the services, across all the countries. What's unique about that program compared to some of the programs that are in existence today? I've never been in a program where we work from the beginning in a cooperative participant nature quite like this one. I've been in a lot of programs where we sold airplanes to various customers and into a foreign military sales environment. But a cooperative program like this is very, very unique. And the first point up there is probably the most unique part of it. If all those participating countries and the services basically stick to how we design the airplane, if we all participate in the same logistics system, you save a lot of money. If you need something different on the airplane, though, however, it's certainly available. Norway may need a drag chute on their airplane to operate on some icy runways, so that would be a cost they would bear. But basically, when it's a shared cost, such as the tooling to build the airplanes, or other parts of the airplane, if you will, that are common across all the services, then you basically share those costs and reduce those costs. So everybody is getting a benefit by the reduced cost through the, at least the sharing of the development cost, as you will. And it's very important to all countries that are involved that we have nine. For the longest time, the, uh, the partners were very much feeling that we had the U.S. services going their route with the eight countries developing their own cooperative program. And it's taken a while over the years, certainly now that we've gotten into production, it's taken a while over the years to get it to the view that we have nine participant countries. And we just really, if you will, solidified that here a couple of weeks ago when we had all nine countries participating in our first joint executive steering board, which basically approved the final configuration of the airplane. So it's been very, it's been very interesting to watch that evolve. But, but we still have to keep in mind, and this is a very big study we currently have also going for the UK, is how you provide each country the capability to sovereignly operate that airplane and maintain it and support it in the conditions they need to. So being able to sovereignly manage what your fleet does is very important to these countries, particularly to the UK. 
Interoperability is very important. I mentioned across those countries, long-term relationships are very important. Most of the countries that are there have had some type of relationship with some part of one of the services through FMS sales. Now it brings everybody together under one program, which is very good. And probably the one that I've seen that's been most important all is when you have nine countries like this involved in the program, even though we're always abused by Congress each year, uh, we do get a certain amount of stability for this program that I've not seen on any others. Uh, so it does provide a little bit, if you will, protection against the whims of the Congress and the ministers of defense and various uh, countries, if you will, officials uh, throughout, the, throughout the cooperative partnership here. Just a quick idea of where we've been over the last uh, year or so. A1 is the airplane you saw, 19 flights. CATB is our cooperative avionics test bed. It's a 737 that will be doing our mission systems testing. I'll show you a picture of that here in a minute, but basically 24 sorties on that airplane. We are in production now. We have 11 airplanes, primarily our test jets in production build, and we're in the process of negotiating the very first low-rate production contract for two Air Force CTOL airplanes, which will be coming along here and delivering early in 2010. All of the subsystems, if you need to, if you will, that provide the warfighting capability of the airplane, the radar, the electronic warfare, the comm nav ident systems are all progressing well. The two engines, the two engines, the F-135 and the F-136 have been intentionally separated about three years in their development cycle, so you understand why the F-135 has about 7,000 hours and about 300 hours on the F-136. Uh, and then the coalition, basically, as of the February of this year, all the countries had signed on to the production and sustainment follow-on development memorandum of agreement, which was a big day of cementing the partnership on the countries that we just talked about here. I will only do one chart that looks anywhere near like a uh, Pentagon or Department's beat, uh, defense briefing, but I've got to show you the schedule, if you will. Um, this kind of gives you an idea of where the overall program is. Some of the, some of the notable events is we talk about CDRs here. We've had the critical design review for the CTOL and the Stovall variant. We're setting up for the critical design review for the carrier variant, going to be here in June. We've flown the first CTOL airplane. We fly another CTOL. We fly the first Stovall in May of 2008. And the carrier variant basically fly about the same time a year later in 2009. We're in the process of signing the contract for this production lot of two airplanes, as well as the long lead funding for the next production lot, which is six CTOL airplanes and six Stovall airplanes, the United States Marine Corps. And then we work our way through there. This is just the testing of the various softwares, as well as then preparing for the initial operating capabilities for the Marine Corps, the Air Force, and the Navy is going to be following a little bit later out in uh, 2015. The United States are... Uh, the Marines will be the first, the Air Force second, and then the UK is somewhere in the time frame here. They're working through their buys and their schedule uh, for delivering their initial operating capability. <clears throat> first flights, as I mentioned, we flew in back in December on AA-1, and then you kind of get an idea from that chart really where everything is going. May, first calendar of uh, first quarter of calendar year 2009. The difference between this Air Force airplane, the AF-1, and the AA-1, basically when we went through the redesign of the airplane to take weight out of the Stovall variant. We changed how we mated the center section of the airplane. So basically, whereas the AA-1 was kind of mated in a sandwich-type configuration of the top of the wing with the bottom wing, to save weight, we've basically gone to a barrel-type mating process where you mate the forward sections with the center sections with the aft sections, reduce some weight there. So that'll be a slightly lighter airplane, if you will, than this one that you see flying here, and then the carrier variant a little bit after that. AA-1 has done a couple of things for us in addition to proving that the models we had were actually accurate. Um, it's, it's reduced the risk uh, for a variety of systems that I said will fly in all of our other airplanes. Most notably, a lot of these things that we talk about here, the electrical system, air data system, fuel system, EHA is the electro-hydraulic static actuators. 
This airplane does not have a hydraulic system as traditional airplanes do. Each of the actuators on each of the flight control surfaces are self-contained. They have their own electrics. They have their own hydraulic pump, own hydraulic motor. So they're really uh, the lifeblood running through this airplane is electricity, not hydraulics, as it is in some others. But this was a high-risk item that we were very concerned about how these, these surface actuators were going to work. They've all worked quite well. What we found out, though, however, is we circulate cooling air through the airplane. You can actually cool these things down to the point where their performance is degraded. So again, we learned this through the test of A1. It'll be something we'll obviously improve as we get to the rest of the airplanes. And then the engine's been doing well, landing gear, everything that would you relate to the vehicle systems of the airplane. Most notably is the helmet-mounted display, which has had four flights on it. Uh, all the pilots have said after a while, um, you notice, you soon notice that you do not have a HUD in the airplane. You basically forget about that. The heads-up display in most airplanes is basically molded to the glare shield. This airplane is everything in the display, every, every symbology that the pilot will use to fly the airplane as well as employ the weapons will be displayed on the visors that will be sitting here in front of his face. Day, night, all weather, everything. So uh, that was a big risk item that so far has been doing well. And then basically reliability and maintainability of this airplane has been doing doing quite well. Uh, we had an interesting situation last Thursday where we had some very unusual electrical transients through the airplane. All the electrics dropped offline, came back in a few milliseconds, but it's given us a lot of good ideas of things we have to go continue to tweak to improve for the next version of the airplanes that will come along after that, the Stovall airplane and the Seatall airplane. And this is the Catbird airplane. This is your conventional 737, if you will. And one thing that we've done that's somewhat unique about this is the front of the airplane, these sensors that you see up here, the wings, the top, the radar, they're all in an exact geometrical configuration of the airplane. What I did not appreciate till I got this program was how important wiring harnesses and the length the wiring harnesses can be. On the F-22 program, the predecessor to this also had a test bed, but the, the configuration of the airplane didn't necessarily match what their F-22 configuration was. Longer wiring harnesses, different spacing between that, which created unique timing problems that basically made the test bed not very usable for a, a test and evaluation article, if you will. So this is one thing. We're going to start flying this airplane later uh, in this year to start doing its mission systems testing, if you will. We already have started plugging some of the initial uh, mission systems computers, some of the comm, nav, some of the IDEN equipment in there. It'll eventually fly with the complete EW system as well as the complete radar system. So this will be a very important tool we have for the F-35. Uh, the 24 hours that we mentioned here, or the 24 flights, 70 hours that we mentioned here largely to prove those unique sensor wings and everything else that you see up here as well as make sure this, this does not degrade uh, the basic flying qualities of a 737. So this is going to be a good tool for us for years to come. A lot of discussion in the media, a lot of discussion throughout the services about what is a fifth generation fighter. Um, there's been a lot of comparisons to fighters that are out there. There's been a lot of comparison to fighters that are coming along. We have, you miss, if you will, throughout the development of this airplane, really referred to the F-35 as a true generation fighter. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about why that's important, why, why anybody should care about it. Really, the fact that, um, the fact that we've had a lot of evolution to build on has been very important. Now, why this is important in terms of getting to a fifth generation fighter. We go throughout the, the, the development of some of our fighters, most notably when you get to the F-4 in the Vietnam days, it was having a very, very large struggle in parity with what would consider very simple systems, older MiGs, older SAM sites. But and we thought that was a fairly advanced airplane, multi-role, supersonic, a lot of good radar capability missiles at the time. But again, we were just having parity with the threat. We start building in threat airplanes, and the airplane that I have about 300 hours in, the F-117, again, very much a stealth airplane, very limited uh, at night, 
And you saw how most of you may have known that when we got to the situation with the, uh, with the, with the air war over Serbia, uh, older generations from the 1960s of SAM sites, it was very easy to configure how you could even shoot this airplane down with some very, very rudimentary systems. So as we start the evolution, we get into what is the F-15, F-18 class, start gaining some advantage over the threat that's out there, but not enough that you would necessarily consider them uh, a generation above the threat that exists. We lost F-15s, F-16s, F-18s, and everything just back in the, uh, in the Gulf War days. When you get to what we consider true fifth generation capability, you blend all these capabilities of stealth, the performance of the airplane, uh, the centric of the ops, the net centric ops we call it, which is just being able to operate with any system that's out there, and then basically reduce the statement cost and make the airplane easily deployable. And what we've seen here, if you notice this bottom bullet, if you have this kind of capability in the airplane, the Air Force has started seeing this initially with its F-22s that have been deployed to scenarios within Alaska. What they found out is it's not just a matter of do I kill more airplanes than the other airplane that's out there, but can I use my sensors and can I use the capabilities I have to make those other airplanes more effective? And that's what we're seeing when you have an airplane that's highly interoperability operable with a wide variety of systems. It can tell those airplanes they should be targeting over here. Uh, do not target here. That airplane is already targeted by this guy over here. The electronic jammer should be pointing in this direction, not that direction. So the F-22s prove themselves very capable without ever firing a shot, in addition, obviously, to the capabilities they have air-to-air. -air. So we see, basically, when we all get the F-22 uh, supplemented with the F-35 and the services that do not have the F-35 right now, will certainly have a capability out there that they do not currently have. I'll remind everybody that this is also going to be the first stealth airplane that not only, obviously, the UK will have, it's the first stealth airplane that the United States Navy, United States Marine Corps will have. So this is their first chance to be able to employ the capability that the Air Force has had a little bit of experience with, certainly in the B-2, the F-117, and the F-22. Now, as I mentioned, there's some key attributes of what we call this fifth-generation fighter. The very low observability, and then probably one of the things that we're starting to be most important in the airplane is the open architecture. To be able to plug in and plug out, if you will, systems, sensors, to be able to fit them in as hardware changes, to be able to make easy upgrades to the airplane as the threat changes or else as your technology changes. That makes them very easy to interoperate with the variety of systems that evolve over the development of all the services. And then one thing that we see probably uh, is certainly important to the budgets of all the services, the fact you make them supportable, you make them easy to maintain. And that's something you really can't do. The chart here really tells you that's something you can't do by modifying an existing legacy fighter. We could not do it to the United States Air Force by modifying an older F-15 or an older F-18. You've got to start with the basic design from the very beginning to make this airplane maintainable and to make it open architecturally based and to make it uh, a stealth configuration. So it's got to be done from, from the beginning with the design in mind. Now, what does this mean why is this important? Why do you put this into an airplane? What does it mean for the services that are going to have it? What make it unique? You think about it first. When you think about a very advanced stealth airplane, you, list, you think about its capability to operate in a very dense threat environment across a wide variety of advanced surface-to-air threats, if you will. So it can do that. Obviously, it can do that. Identify double-digit SAMs, we call it, which is the euphemistic name for the most advanced uh, surface-to-air threats that are out there but also be able to locate, identify, and destroy a wide variety of targets, whether they be the SAMs or moving targets, tanks hidden under trees, insurgents in a building. It has to do that across a wide variety of spectrum of air war ops. And it's got to do it, if you don't do this lower than what your current legacy systems are out there, you beg the question, of why, why wouldn't I just buy more of the legacy systems and outnumber the threat? So you've got to really put that into one package.
to be able to get to the threat, obviously you hope to be able to reduce whatever's out there. We show this, if you will, as radar rings around high threat surface to air areas, but this can be any type of system that can pick up electronic emissions, IR emissions, whatever. You have to be able to make sure your airplane can reduce the threat area that it has to go through. It also has to be able to see the threat before it sees him, and that's basically what we're looking at. Legacy airplanes, you're kind of in parity with the existing fighters that are out there. You bring a fifth generation airplane with stealth capability, he gets to see the battle first, he gets to fight the battle as he chooses and not be forced into that. So basically, where as legacy tech air is going to be engaged and shot by the ground offensive, they're going to lose the surprise, lose a lot of mission effectiveness, the fifth generation airplane basically gets to control the battle from the very beginning. And that's something that's going to be a very unique capability of the F-35, because not only can it do this on day one of the war, we also provide the capability to put uh, weapons across a wide variety of stations on the airplane and conduct a lot of the ops like you see in the news today across, certainly across Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's what this represents here. If you look at this, uh, you see a high threat scenario where a large variety of airplanes, both with with uh, exceptional surface-to-air and air-to-air capabilities, and then you bring in a legacy flight that's got to fight its way through this to be able to pick whatever target it has to destroy. When you're able to reduce this capability because you're no longer that observable, you then get to determine the battle, and you get to do things like attack cruise missiles, which these airplanes can't do because they can never get through there. You also get to determine which one of the threats you attack and how you go in here to prosecute the battle. So certainly get a, certainly a lot more flexibility when you have some of the fifth generation capabilities that the F-35 brings. So what's unique about the F-35? Fifth generation, but it has its own unique attributes that take it well beyond that, if you will. Um, we talk about the cockpit. Very unique cockpit, basically a total glass display. I'll talk about what these displays will do for you. Um, it integrates everything so that the pilot is very, if you will, comfortable within the airplane, has everything at his fingertips, and as I talked about also, we have the next generation escape system. Now, this is the helmet that we're flying with in the airplane right now. This is test pilot John Beasley, kind of a Darth Vader-looking arrangement, if you will. Um, and you notice that this is in the up position as he starts the engine. This is the position down once the engines are running. There's going to be a subtle change in this helmet once we actually get to the production configuration. You can't see it right here, but there's a slight little bend or seam right in the middle of that display. And it's going to be rounded, so it's a very spherical display. But everything that the sensors are going to be taken into the airplane, every Every emanation that the airplane picks up, every threat that it sees, will be displayed into this, this the, uh, the inside of the visor here, if you will, to be able to give the pilot the capability to easily fight the airplane. Right now, they're just using this airplane, this, this helmet, to display your basic attitude, airspeed, altitude information to the pilot. But what's unique about this, as unwieldy as it may seem, this is only about a pound heavier than the current helmets that most of us are flying out there now across all the services. The challenge we've got, and the challenge that it makes... Uh, for the uh, Mark 16 Martin Baker seat as well, for the Martin Baker seat designers, is the fact that when this comes out into the slipstream, obviously there's a lot of aerodynamic loads on that. So that's what we're working with right now to try to balance it so is the head and neck loads, once this hits the windstream, are not excessive to the point that it would, would cause damage. And this is the Mark, 6, uh, the Mark 16 seat. As I mentioned, we have to basically be able to accommodate any size range of individual that we think could ever go pilot, go through pilot training within uh, within all the services and all the participant countries. So as you look at the seat here, we've given it a unique challenge once you mix that helmet with the seat, with the environment the airplane's going to be in. And we made significant progress in the last year on that. A lot of work to go, obviously, but it's been significantly uh, improved over the last year or so. Now, the airplane itself, basically a wide, wide array 
of sensors. Under the nose, I mentioned that's the electrical optical targeting system, basically a FLIR pod, uh, forward-looking infrared. The actively electrically scanned radar provides radar capability, but it also provides uh, functions as a sensor. The radar will be used to pick up threat electronic signals across the battlefield. So it's not only using it to attack the targets, it's using it to bring in the information across whatever may be uh, attempting to attack the airplane. Distributed aperture sensors, you'll see a picture of that in just a minute, but distributed aperture sensors are basically sensors that give the pilot a full 360-degree view, not only of what's going on through his helmet, but also looking for missiles that may be launched at the airplane. So missile warning system, plus it provides a day-night vision system for the pilots. And then through various antennas across different parts of the airplane, we connect to a variety of different capabilities, such as the satellite communications networks, which will evolve out in the 2014 timeframe, a lot of data links. This is a radar, a different type, or excuse me, a radio. This is a different type of radio, an in-flight data link. Basically, what this means here is not only does the airplane link to a lot of things, all, all airplanes in a flight of F-35s will link to each other. Airplanes in a U.S. F-35 package will be able to easily link to airplanes in a U.K. or Australian uh, package. So basically, you have 360-degree ferricles coverage around the airplane of some type of sensor. In, in the old days of how we built airplanes, the airplanes I grew up uh, flying, you basically took the signals that were coming in from all the sensors, and you had a radar display, you had electronic warfare display, you had a variety of different displays that the pilot then, if he was good enough, fused in his mind and used his own knowledge about how you're going to you know, fight your own battles. If, if we've done this right, and this is probably one of the more challenging aspects of the F-35 that we have, we take all of the sensors, we fuse everything into one display for the pilot. We even give him a list of potential suggested options of what he should attack next, how he should employ the airplane, how he should arrange his sensors, where his next threat is, and actually kind of what he should do next. Now, we're not, we're not taking away all the judgment on that, but we're basically putting it into a single picture so it takes every sensor around the airplane, takes all of these displays, integrates it into one package, so it makes it a much more effective flying airplane, particularly in high-stress, high-speed battle situations where he may not have a lot of time to think about and react to whatever the threat may be popping up out there. So this sensor fusion is a unique aspect of this airplane that will give a new capability that we've not really begun to exploit yet, and certainly it'll be a, a key factor as we get into the test of the mission systems in the airplane. Fused battle space. So basically you take everything that's going on around the pilot, you put it into the displays. This is kind of a representative image of what the pilot would be seeing in there. You bring in the data from the outside sensors such as AWACS and Joint Stars and the other airplanes that can sense it. Send it to the, to the foreship, if you will, and then display it to the pilot in terms, of, in terms of what he should be doing in various aspects of the battle. And this is kind of it, the radar, uh, the radar that looks at ground moving targets. The, uh, the, if you will, the FLIR pod out the front of the nose, the missile warning system, all comes into the cockpit in day and also the night. The unique aspect about this, most people have seen various pictures throughout the news of, of soldiers and pilots wearing the night vision goggles that fit over the helmets, hang down, fairly unwieldy. The helmet will provide that capability through the camera systems in there, so it'll be the same system day or night without having to add night vision goggles, which also create another ejection hazard for the pilot. A wide variety of weapons. You carry weapons internally when you need to in a very high-threat stealth situation. 1,000-pound uh, weapons for the Stovall airplanes, 2,000-pound weapons for CTOLs and CV airplanes. But when that is no longer required after the threat has been suppressed and basically you're operating in situations like you see in the news in Afghanistan, Iraq, 11 stations total that you can hang a variety of weapons across uh, all the mission spectrums you would expect. 
That can be basically up to 12 missiles for air-to-air -air or a wide variety of missiles for air-to-ground or just what the mission system dictates. So you see you have a lot of flexibility in the airplane past just the day one stealth war, if you will. And really, as I mentioned, you can't be a fifth-generation airplane unless you think about logistics and you think about supportability. And it was interesting to read, again, Sir James's bio when he talked about as he's building the MB2 one of the things that he paid attention to that thought he would give him a great advantage over some of the competitors at the time was looking at such, such things as engine remove and replacement times, access panels. He's very proud of the fact that he had considered maintainability very important in the early designs of the airplane. And that kind of caught my attention because I look back on airplanes I've flown, F-15s, certainly F-117s, there was almost no thought to maintainability given in that airplane. It was like, I need to get this airplane to war, I need to get it there in any situation We'll just take whatever maintainability and supportability we can get to be able to do that. So the fact that that mindset starts early in Sir James's uh, aircraft design career and the fact that we are really paying a lot of attention to it now, I think is a very important aspect because we find out that, again, the thing that will determine how well you can continue to modify and upgrade your fleet, obviously, is budgets. If all your budget is spent trying to maintain an old airplane, such as the problem we have within the U.S. Air Force on F-16s or F-15s, you lose a lot of your buying power to be able to continue upgrading it as the threat changes. So this is a very important aspect. Not to mention the fact that it does take less spare parts, less support equipment to be able to deploy that. So your transportation cost to the battle or your transportation to training sites goes down as well. And this just kind of gives you an idea. We have nine key performance parameters across the airplane. Five of those are associated with some type of maintainability. Combat radius, recovery, stowable performance, both the takeoff, and this is VLBB. This is our most stressing parameter of the airplane. This is vertical load bring back. Basically, the stowable airplanes that we deal with have to be able to come back with two 1,000-pound bombs, two AMRAAM-type missiles, and enough fuel to miss the deck on the ship and go back around. Basically, this is what's driving a lot of the work to get the stowable design right, and this has been one of our more challenging things. The reason these are yellow here. Some of these more challenging, if you will, key performance parameters, we rate them as yellow simply because they're still within uncertainty bands, our ability to analyze and measure them until we get more data out of the airplane. And we're getting a lot of data out of the engine performance right now to be able to tell us a little bit more about where these will fall. But certainly mission reliability, sortie generation rate, and all the logistics parameters have been doing quite well on the maintainability side of, this, of the equations, if you will. <clears throat> now, I, I'm going to talk a little bit. This is a unique area. This is new because... As, as, we've, as we've evolved the design of the F-35, i got to tell you, my United States Air Force, the United States Marine Corps, the United States Navy, and certainly the U.K. are just beginning to think about what I do with all this capability and this different type of performing airplane. So how they've integrated this system into their concept of operations, CONOPS, this is one thing that we've been pressing very hard with the services to take a look at. And i got to tell you that all of the services are just beginning to understand how they use that fifth-generation system we talk about. So I'm going to briefly touch on all the services to give you a little bit of insight about how the certainly the Navy, Marine Corps, and Air Force see they're going to fight some future battles with this system. The Air Force's challenge will be in the future will be to integrating both the F-22 and the F-35 into their battle scenarios. We see the F-22, the Air Force sees the F-22, as you will, kind of owning the high part of the arena, maybe the faster end of the arena, and using that to go, if you will, against some of the higher threat, more dense environments. Be able to come in very fast, very high, and tack some high threat scenarios. You see what F-15 does, it only has a small portion of where the F-22 is. So it's coming in out here. They see the F-35 
providing a lot of targeting flexibility and being able to support this if we don't have that many F-22s in the future. It depends on how many the services end up buying. But basically, it also gives them a wide variety of basing options. And then you see, just to give you an idea, it gives them mission performance in terms of increased range compared to the legacy airplanes that are out there. It gives them a wide variety of basing options and targeting flexibility that are not in existence right now. So the United States Air Force has got to figure out where they use F-22s, where they use F-35s. Right now, the plan is the Air Force still needs about 381 of these. They're budgeted for about 180. They're still buying 1,763 of the F-35. So it's going to be replacing most of the legacy fleet currently in existence in the United States Air Force. And they will use the mix, kind of just about what I talked about, to go into the very high-threat, anti-access environments, if you will, with very, very strenuous SAM threats and air-to-ground threats, be able to pretend, if you will, penetrate through this area and then provide a lot of the capabilities that we just talked about in terms of what the airplane itself does. So you suppress the SAMs, you do some of the early targeting with the F-22, then the F-35 comes in to basically help with the higher threat scenarios that the F-22 did not take care of and also provide the persistence such as combat air support and the things once the high threat areas have been, have been basically eliminated. And you see here what really enables these airplanes to do that. The JDAM small diameter bombs, the ability to locate and destroy and target their own targets without a lot of coordinates from air-to-air -air systems that would normally provide that. And that's what you get with that kind of combination. Now, I will tell you this. The United States Marine Corps is probably a little bit further along than most of the services in thinking about how they're going to use this airplane. Their key requirement for the United States Marine Corps is just to be able to eliminate all of their older Harriers, their older F-18s, and get to a single airframe. And this is where they're going with that. Uh, they've been through a variety of airplanes in their history. Uh, as we talk about tactical air for the Marine Air to Ground Task Force, this is where they are today. F-18s, EA-6B Prowlers, and certainly the Harriers. They are very much looking to go into a single platform that can, if you will, assume all of these missions. And the Air Force is, or excuse me, the United States Marine Corps is very much about, about making sure their aircraft provides a multi-role capability to what they consider their multi-mission Marine Corps. A little bit of the disagreement I have with the United States Marine Corps they see this airplane being there primarily to enable, they quote, they call them their strategic corporal to get to the battlefield uh, undeterred, if you will. We're, we're trying to help the Marine Corps understand, obviously, when an airplane with this much capability can do a little bit more than help your corporal with his rifle get to this part of the battlefield that you'd like to have him at. But it's kind of an ongoing evolution. As I mentioned, uh, the Marine Corps certainly never had an airplane that had this kind of stealth capability, this kind of fifth generation capability. So they're evolving their concept as you go. In fact, they're a little bit forward-thinking. They, they have thought about the fact that the F-35 ACE's air combat element brings to their marine battle. Uh, a wide variety of flexibility across all ops, not only insurgency warfare and the traditional types, but certainly the day one battles that we mentioned there. They see it bringing new distance and tactical capability that they've not had. They see that probably they can do a lot, not only with the lethal aspects of it, but the non-lethal aspects, enhanced mobility, maneuverability, and everything there. The Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps for Aviation for, uh, for the United States Marine Corps has said that if this airplane never drops a weapon, it'll provide me a lot more capability than I've ever had in the past, simply because of the fact we talk about NTISR, which is the non-traditional uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. They know that the legacy airplanes that they take out into the threat environment right now, basically all of these sensors here exist on F-18s and in some cases the Harriers, but if there's any kind of threat out there, it negates a lot of that sensor capability. So they lose the capability of that airplane to do what they would like to in terms of gaining reconnaissance of the battlefield. And they really feel that the fifth generation airplane, the F-35, will bring that. Um, 
as you look across their, their, their view here, as it mentions here, their fifth generation will provide not only this capability, but it'll bring it across the full spectrum of warfare. It was interesting to note, uh, Sir James considered vertical takeoff and landing aircraft to be extraordinarily lethal. Now, how he said that, obviously, I think, had to do something with the survivability of the pilot. The Marine Corps is looking at that a little bit different in terms of a different uh, definition of lethality. Uh, but it's amazing how that has evolved over the years of how you look at vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. The Navy, a legacy fleet that consists of F-18EFs, the newer generation F-18s, and the F-35s. <clears throat> they see basically how this is going to work. The F-18EFs and the F-35s will be working against the highest threats, but on the day one wars, the deep strike, suppression of enemy air defenses, destruction of enemy air defenses, will primarily fall to the F-35. And then they call it the outer battle and the inner battle, if you will, offensive counter-air and defensive counter-air. So in the early phases of the war, they're kind of, kind of divide how F-18s and F-35s see the battle. Later days in the war, as the threat's been suppressed, they see a lot of commonality between these two airplanes, and that's very much true. But this capability right here is something, again, like the Marine Corps, uh, the Navy has not had a stealth day one capability, so this is something they are just beginning to understand how to use. And so how they have to fight now, it's very much a sequential ops. They step through gaining local superiority, and then they start looking for their operational effects, and then they basically go through the strategic effects of targeting leadership and targeting everything after the threat has been suppressed. What they see now is they move to this new force that involves F-35s, F-18s, F-18Gs, or an electronic warfare platform, is that day one they'll be able to go across the entire spectrum of the war and not have to gradually roll back the capability, gradually roll back the threats that exist. So it provides them a much more, if you will, thorough ability to prosecute the air battle. Now, probably following on the heels of all this development is where the United Kingdom is going to use this airplane. A lot of the same tenets that you saw for the Air Force, the Marine Corps, is going to flow into the concept of operations of the United Kingdom. And again, as we talked about, the rapid deployment capability across any area the United Kingdom sees they need to participate in, to be able to deploy that airplane without having to take a large variety of uh, logistics capabilities with them to be able to rapidly deploy that to be able to get a certain amount of basing flexibility, not only on the new carriers, but to be able to operate through a variety of different locations, smaller runways, different airfields in different areas, and then basically to be able to participate in any type of coalition activities that come along. A full member of the coalition, I mean, they're obviously doing that very well now with the Harriers uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, but this provides another level, as I mentioned, to the combatant commanders that can use this interchangeably with all the other airplanes that are out there. And again, it provides them the capability through the F-22 to be able to do the forcible entry scenarios supplemented by Tomahawks, UCAVs that may be in existence. And it also provides them, once they gain dominance through the battlefield out there, to be able to enable the legacy airplanes that exist, Typhoons. Tornadoes will probably be out of the service by then, but certainly to be able to make the Typhoon a more effective airplane as they gain the dominance of the battlefield. And then basically a broad variety of missions across a broad variety of, uh, of, of, of scenarios, if you will. I'm not going to go through this. This is my to-do list on any given day, just to kind of give you an idea. Because of all that mix of technology and partners, there's just a variety of different things that we deal with in the program office every day. And this just kind of gives you an idea of, if you will, what life in the day of a program executive officer with an F-35 is. And, and this is the challenge, this is the rewarding part uh, of what we deal with every day. What's also not mentioned up here, but probably takes up more of my time than anything, is the discussions with Congress, uh, the discussions with our own government accountability office. 
I noticed of interest in Sir James's bio that a couple things uh, he mentioned. <clears throat> uh, a certain lack of, of, if you will, of affection for government ministers. And I can appreciate that to some degree. I think his words were, they produce nothing and serve no useful purpose. That may be a little bit strong, maybe a little bit overstated, but we deal with that on any given day. We get a lot of help on this program that we do not necessarily ask for. But being the largest uh, program in the Department of Defense history, you have to come to expect that. I also note with a certain amount of pride that Sir James had his own run-in with the Government Accountability Office over how they were costing out Navy parts in one particular contract. And he said he had a particular resentment for the GAO at that time. For those of you that know, the GAO looks at our program on an annual basis. Um, they have had less than kind words for this program for a variety of reasons, most of which is the fact that it doesn't fit their idea of how an ideal model acquisition program would evolve. They see it something like an F-16 program where you evolve blocks of capability over 30 years of time. Uh, so we do not quite fit that, so we have gone through a, a lot of discussions with our own GAO on, on how this program is proceeding or not. And after three years of doing annual reports on it, we finally made a little progress with them when their report was entitled this year, Progress Made, but Challenges Remain. So there is no doubt challenges remain on this program. But this kind of gives you an idea. There was also another quote by Sir James that I thought was particularly interesting. When you look at these types of activities right here, it says, I feel I'm quite daft to work the hours I do. Uh, for as personal income is involved, it seems I am working for the income tax people alone. If it were not for the fact that I'm interested in this kind of work, I would have packed out and sold out long ago. So we do this for a lot of reasons. If you do anything related to aeronautics, anything related to airplanes, there is no better place to be than than when you were designing and building a brand new airplane and flying the first of types over a period of time. It's hard for me to convey to everybody just how much that alone is rewarding. So I find out that the further I am able to get from Washington, D.C., the closer I'm able to get to that airplane or people who are going to use the airplane, I feel much more, if you will, energized on the work we do on any given day. Uh, while I have incredible technical challenges, there are nothing Nothing to compare with the rewards I have that I get uh, when, I'm, when I'm able to work with this airplane uh, on any given day. So just to give you an idea, we work through this. We work through it for our customers. We work for it because we enjoy it, and we are making progress. What does not come across in this program as we talk about the schedule issues we have and some of the cost issues we have is that the, the, the performance of the airplane, the mission system performance of the airplane, which we talked about here, proves itself again and again every day in our models, in our labs, in our test beds, everything across the program. And when you look at the results of the first airplane that we flew, it gives me a lot of confidence we're going to be able to, to deliver everything that all of our customers were looking for. So as it says there, that's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do every day. Uh, and that's why we're doing it. So that being said, uh, I would very much love to let me quit lecturing you. I don't consider it a lecture. I'd much rather hear where your concerns are, what your questions are. I'd much rather talk about the program than just brief the slide. So I hope I've left you enough time to do that. Sir? Well, as the screen says, the... But it is time for questions, and we've got two roving microphones at the back of the room, and so we'll try and um, get those to you before we speak. Oh, Peter Baker, ex-test pilot. In the conventional airplane, was thrust vectoring ever considered? Sir, there, there is no thrust vectoring in this airplane, uh, on the conventional mode. It's strictly You didn't consider it as possible? No, there's not. Unlike the F-22, which you're probably familiar with, which has pitch vectoring on this engine, this one is just a straight nozzle. There is no thrust vectoring on the conventional airplane. 
as a secretary, could I ask, do you have standby instruments in the cockpit? <laughs> we do. Uh, but we have an interesting way of getting the standby instruments. It's a lot of degradation down through the displays and eventually to backup instruments which are on the displays. Whether we end up actually having a standby ball attitude display, uh, it's, it's, it's yet to be determined. I will tell you that the recent incident we had on the airplane when it lost some of its electrics, one of the, I think it's probably six modes into it, is we have to rely on the old pitot-static air pressure to give the flight controls info to fly by. And that just scared the engineers to death. They go, if we get to that, we are in a really, really bad situation. I go, well, come on, guys. I think we've been doing this since like 1903. Do not get so scared of some of these conventional modes just because we've gone six generations or five generations past that. You talked about uh, the uh, issue of sovereignty and how important that was, particularly for the UK. Um, and then you didn't return to it. Um, is that because you feel that the whole question of uh, transfer of uh, the necessary means by which uh, this country can maintain, uh, modify for its own needs is actually uh, a problem that's solved, or is it still work in progress? I, I, I don't think it's solved. I, I don't think it's a big problem, though. I will say that. I, I think when we talk about what you're going to need to do, what any service will need to do to maintain the airplane is going to be available to that particular country or service to do that. The, when we look at sovereignty, and particularly when we look at it for the UK, it's the degree of how much capability you necessarily want or need in country. Not that we're determining. We're going to you to ask the questions. But it's, not, it's, it's, it's an issue of how much do you want to pay also to have that capability resident here versus, I mean, to tell you, to be honest with you, one of the ways we're looking at doing the updates of all the electronic warfare libraries in the airplane is having all the countries participating in one location in a reprogramming center for the electronic data files. Um, if it's determined that's not acceptable to any of the countries, they always have the option of putting that in their own, if you will, confines of their own border. I don't think transfer of information or transfer of technology is going to limit anything you want to do. Cost may. Some of this may be very expensive. And the reason that I say that is because if, we, if we're able to share that across nine countries, it becomes a, a certainly a cost saver for all. But if the country decides they need, UK decides they need that own capability in here, I think we have a way to get, get all of that technology transferred. And certainly one thing we say about technology transfer that seems to be holding true, it's always solved with time. So when we're talking about a very unique, if you will, technological issue in 2006 or 2007, by the time you get to 2010, 2011, 2012, obviously that becomes a much easier issue as well. So personally, I'll leave it to the, to the representatives of the MOD to, 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 to go into this in more detail. But in spite of what you read in the press and in spite of all the stories that have been out there, uh, I think at the working level of the team they feel that we're making significant progress in all the transfer of issues that may have to do with software or technology on the airplane. I just don't see that being the major limiting factor right now. It's going to be more so cost, I think. Good evening, sir. Thank sir. you for a very comprehensive uh, lecture on the aircraft. You mentioned that the lifeblood of the F-35 is going to be electric and not um, hydraulics. What about the amount of uh, battle damage that it can sustain and still have the capability to carry on? Would that be higher than a hydraulic system? The, the idea is that you're a little bit more survivable, obviously, than a hydraulic system. Because if you take damage into one area of one flight control, you don't risk the potential damage of losing it or centers part of the airplane. You don't risk the potential of losing all of your fluid, even though most new airplanes isolate that to some degree. 
If you do take battle damage, first of all, it's much harder to hit a wire that's that size than a hydraulic tube that may be that size. And you provide a lot of redundancy. Every one of these, if you will, flight control surfaces has basically about four channels of electricity coming to it. So really, the only time you would suffer from enough battle damage to be able to, to render the airplane unflyable is when you basically take a hit to the engine that destroys its capability to run any of the generation systems. And then you still have the 270-volt battery that's there to provide you a certain amount of if you will, egress to a certain safe area, or maybe if there's a field nearby, an emergency landing situation. So, I, From my experience with the F-16, which kind of started some of these redundant flight control capabilities with two or three or four or five different levels of backup power all the way to batteries, I think we're making progress in that area. I think it's going to provide us a level of survivability that anything with a hydraulic system currently does not have. It's become challenging, though. We've already had to go back on the carrier bearing airplane, which I didn't talk about much today, and redesign the generator and the amount of load it puts out, because what we see on the very, if you will, high-demanding situations where the airplane's very low altitude, uh, very high speed, when the flight control surfaces are actuated, the, the pressure is not put back into a hydraulic system, it's put into the generator. So we saw load cycling on the generator that eventually would cause probably an unacceptable degradation of the, of the gearbox shaft and everything. So on the carrier variant, and we're going to make it common for all, we had to redesign the generator and redesign the shaft that drives it because of the way your flight controls react to the, to, the, to the ambient dynamic pressure, if you will. So, very interesting problem. I think that surprised everybody just a little bit. From your experience, are you concerned with um, information overload to the pilot, or you've got so many integrated systems now where you've got more than one instrument displayed and you've combined them. Do you lose any information from a, a traditional aspect where you've been looking at different displays? <laughs> That, as I kind of mentioned, what we call, what we call sensor fusion, that, that is our biggest challenge across all the technological issues on the airplane. It's how you take all different sensors and put it into the right display for the pilot. We, we have a whole group of guys that look at this on a regular basis in the simulator to decide how they want that display to look. So we, we try to avoid just what you're, what you're referring to. But there is that potential that we, that we try to do all things in one display that we may limit that. So what we do to be able to, to, to kind of alleviate that, if you some degree, if you still, kind of like the, the old guys of us that are used to looking at a radar display and electronic warfare display, you can still bring up a lot of these individual sensors to look at each individual display if you choose to. So we're kind of offering it both ways. But if we did it right, you know, obviously that big display in the middle with everything integrated is what everybody will eventually using. And, and as we look at the pilots that we have flying this in the simulator now, they're kind of using a mix of that one display with everything on it, if you will, and a little bit of some other display, whether it be the defensive systems or the offensive systems or the, you know, the radar or whatever, uh, or the synthetic aperture map on the radar. You mix so, a couple of those together, but you still try to integrate it into one display. But, but if you're old school and you're, you still need to feel like you got to look at an EW display or a radar display or a DAS sensor display, we still have the capability to do that if you choose to. So, but yeah, that's a, that's a big challenge we have right now, making it easy for the, for the, for the guys or the gals to use when they when they get in this airplane. I wonder where the lightweight pilots are going to come from. <laughs> yeah, we've had to get away from calling it the 103-pound female and the 245-pound male, just out of gender, uh, if you will, in the United States. You understand how that's going, although you find that it does seem kind of insulting when you talk about the 245-pound female and the 103-pound male. But we're all things to everybody in politically correct well, United States. my next comment. Um, <laughs> I won't say this off the record, but I'll ask you to treat it with the uh, with the insight that I'm providing here. Um, what what what's referring to is obviously the GE Rolls Royce engine is a constant debate item within the uh, within the current budgets of the United States. 
the only issue that there seems to be is the cost of developing a second engine. And, and there's a lot of discussion about whether you gain that money back through competition, different things like that. All that aside, my personal concern on the program is that if one of the committees or the Congress or whatever uh, brings the second engine into the program, uh, I just want them to make sure that they fund it adequately. I do not want to have to give up money that goes to your development program, our development program, uh, Air Force production, Marine Corps production, Navy production, to, to fund you know, how that engine evolves. So that is my major concern right now. I want to be able to keep this development program intact. And so all I'm asking is that, uh, and it probably will be a fixture of the program if I had to bet paychecks, so to speak, but I just ask that it gets adequately funded so we don't have to pull from you know, the Peter to Paul thing and, and avoid that. So that's my only issue. Hi there, Oliver Strother from Rolls-Royce. Um, I'm sure there's the odd Harrier pilot in the room. I was wondering what experience or lessons learned you got from the Harry design when redesigning an entirely new vertical lift system. I, 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 would, I will let a Harrier pilot answer if they choose to, but let me tell you where I've seen that going. Harrier is a very good airplane. Um, a very challenging problem it was given when it was designed and built many years ago. What we are trying to do now is take what has been learned by that airplane. I mean, if, if you think about it, that was a pathfinder for a lot of the things we're doing, just as the F-22 is kind of a pathfinder for some of the avionics we have. So we look and, and see what is needed in today's environment. You, you want to simplify the flight controls as much as you can so that, at least to the guys that have never grown up flying Harriers, that have flown F-18s in the Marine Corps, they can transition to an airplane that, that kind of flies along the same directional sense of an airplane. You want to be able to bring back weapons if you don't expend them. You want to be able to have the option of bringing those back to the ship if you miss the ship, go around. You want to be able to do that on hot days. So a lot of what the Harrier taught us, United States Marine Corps, the United Kingdom, whatever, we're trying to take those lessons and integrate them into the airplane. I'm sure there's guys that have worked with the flight control system and everything that learned you know, what it took to develop a Harrier flight control system and how they thought it would be best to modify what we have here today. But it's it very much, even the Harrier airplane, if you will, uh, flies very much like a, 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 a conventional airplane in terms of how the stick and the throttles work. And we also try to automate the flight controls as much as we can so that some of the really high demand tasks of hovering or landing from a hover are relatively simple. Uh, and that means basically you can set stick and throttles and set desires for vertical speed and, and it'll practically land itself. So um, I, I do not want to denigrate the Harrier at all. I mean, that was a tough problem that they were given many years ago. And that's probably what led Sir James to say, it's an extraordinarily lethal airplane. It took a lot to get to this point. So I think we've made it better. That's kind of how I see it. If there's any Harrier pilots that would like to comment on it, I'll be happy to turn the floor over to them. I know we've got at least one Harrier pilot <laughs> in the room. I wouldn't describe him as odd. Um, in fact, legend, legendary would be more like it. So I don't know whether you want, do you want to comment, Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> Can you bring the microphone down to the front, please? Thank you, yes. I mean, it is true, of course, that the Harrier was a completely manually operated aeroplane. You had to fly it in a different, using different piloting techniques in the hover than you did in conventional flight with this aeroplane. Thanks not to Harrier development flying, but to the VARC development flying. Yes. Um, this aircraft, my understanding is, you will be able to treat it like a conventional aeroplane at all times. In other words, you pull a stick back to go up and you push the stick forward to go down, regardless of airspeed. And I think that's a wonderful achievement. Yes, sir. Um, that has not really got anything to do with the Harrier, it is to do with the VARC program. Um, yes, the Harrier drove it. The Harrier was ridiculously difficult to fly in the early days as service aeroplanes went. But that was the price that had to be paid 
uh, with the technology that was available at that time, which in late 1960s was negligible. Yes, sir. What 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 is referring to the VOC? The and I cannot tell you what that mark. I don't know what VOC stands for. But basically, we did a lot of early flight control development in a Harrier with a digital flight control system with a back cockpit configured to fly like the F-35 will fly. So we we did a lot of modes where you put the guy in the back seat to work the controls that are designed to work like the F-35 with the safety pilot in the front. So the VOC is a Harrier derivative variant that uh, gave us a very, very exceptional test bed to prove the flight control laws for the new Stovall airplane. So it came in quite valuable for that. So, um, Group Captain Bell, Sean Bell, I'm the Harrier Force Commander, but I'll restrict my question away from Harrier Force, if I may. Um, in the past, we've uh, incentivized failure, uh, in a way, to our manufacturers because we bought aeroplanes and the less reliable they were, the more we paid industry to put them right again. Um, and that's given us quite a big logistics bill today. Um, how are we managing to learn those lessons? Because obviously for every pound we spend on the aeroplane, we tend to spend five or six times that in logistics support. What methods of reassurance have you got in the program that will get a, a more reliable aeroplane and incentivize success and reliability rather than unreliability? Uh, two ways. <clears throat> I'll go back to that chart a minute that, that had those nebulous green and yellow bars across the side. Um, and unfortunately, for whatever reason, uh, they consider that in a public audience, I can't put the numbers of what the range, like the carrier variant, 641 miles. Uh, the Stovall variant is, is, is over 470, 80 miles. I can't write that on there. But anyway, across the left side, right side of that chart, there were, there were five parameters that I think basically, if, you know, their key performance, which means in theory, if any one of those turn red, we have to consider whether we really buy the airplane or not. But you had, you had sortie generation rate. You had mission reliability, you had logistics footprint, all of those, if you will, tied directly to how easy and how cheap, let's not say cheap, but how easily the airplane maintains and how, how, how many times you have to go work on it, which is what she's talking about, about how have we incentivized a contractor to, to make us pay him to repair the airplane. So, I mean, the basic design has some focus on the airplane's got to be reliable. If it's not, we have to consider whether it still meets the mission. The second part of that is, the support sustainment concept under a performance-based logistics uh, will be basically the contract incentives that the contractor will have will be the, the cost reductions in maintaining that airplane from year to year. So as we collect more data about what it costs every year to fly an F-35, that'll be used to update the performance-based contract uh, for the contractors involved. And then their ability to reduce the cost from year to year will actually determine their profit, not did they make more money because it cost them more to repair it and we had to pay them more? So it's going to, through the contract process, with starting with those key performance parameters, through the contract process, the idea is to incentivize reduction in that cost from year to year. Now, granted, that's uh, a very, very challenging equation because all that has to come together. Otherwise, we all end up paying more. So that is something we're trying to pay a lot of attention to. Not sure we got it right. We'll have to see how the airplane performs, certainly on the, on the, uh, on the reliability and maintainability side. And then as we start collecting numbers off some of the early airplanes, AA-1's a good example. I mean, granted, the airplane only has 19 flights on it, uh, but the, the, pro the systems that we thought were really going to give us problems, the really challenging integrated systems on the engine that provide cooling, electrics, emergency power supply, as well as the new actuators that have never flown in any airplane, we were expecting a lot of problems out of those. Those have performed almost flawlessly. Uh, we had this engine slight issue with the electrical system thing, but that's been one flight out of out of 19 so far. So it gives us some pause to think that maybe we got some of the initial designs of some of these really challenging uh, vehicle systems right to be able to start reducing some of these costs. 
we'll see. Obviously, we're only one airplane, only 20 hours. But uh, Normally, uh, the first of the variants, that's where you see a lot of these early problems. Uh, so hopefully, we've avoided some of those. I see a great picture behind you with nine partner nations. Will there be a tenth and eleventh? And if so, who do you think that might be? <clears throat> there will be others, but there will be no more partners. Uh, the partnership has essentially been closed uh, by the nine nations you see represented here. These countries have a certain, if you will, access with all of them represented in program office. We have folks from every one of these countries representing the program office now. Uh, depending on what level, there's only one level, one partner, obviously the UK. More personnel are there as part of that, uh, part of that country than any of the others. So they've had a certain unique access to the program and a certain unique opportunity to be able to participate in decisions. As I mentioned, this joint executive steering board where all nine countries came in to approve the final software configuration of the airplane, uh, is very unique. There will be other countries, uh, but they'll be more along the lines of the traditional foreign military sales programs that we have within the United States government right now. Uh, Israel, obviously very interested, will probably be the next person if I had to, or next country if I had to guess would buy an airplane. Japan, they, they either want an F-22 or an F-35 and Congress is debating what technology they get. They'll be coming along fairly closely. Spain probably is not too far off in the future there. And then I can tell you we probably talked to a whole host of other countries from Greece to Hungary to Poland. To, I mean, they're all over there. But I, but I see certainly Japan, Israel, and probably Spain being, being fairly close to come by and buy airplanes. And that's, that's good for all these guys because the more of those airplanes you buy sooner, the costs go down. So looking forward to that. that sort of thing. Thank you. That brings us to, I think, the end of the, the questions. Thank you very much indeed, General, for those. Could I ask um, Steve Roberts to give the vote of thanks, please? President-elect, um, uh, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, what a difficult thing. What I mean is that from our narrow viewpoint on the program on JSF, JSF is so massive, so all-encompassing, and so complex. The challenge we set for the general tonight was to wrap all this in one hour and 15. Well, I've just relived the last five and a half years on the program, and it just leaves me to convey, uh, to ask the audience to convey our thanks to the general in the usual manner.